You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Hi, everyone. This is CJ. Welcome to episode 77 of the Dangerous History Podcast. For the first time, my ongoing one-man revolution becomes a two-man revolution, as this is a first for the show. My very first time having a guest on the Dangerous History Podcast. I've been a guest on several other podcasts, but this is the first time I've invited somebody on to join me on mine. And I don't think I could have done much better for my first guest here. I'm very happy to have Bill Bupert from ZeroGov.com joining me for this and for several upcoming episodes to lend us his expertise on the history of irregular warfare. Very interesting subject. First, though, just a quick shout-out to our newest Patreon supporter for the show. Big thank you to Jason for stepping up in the last day or two to help out the Dangerous History Podcast over at patreon.com slash profcj. Remember, pledge to support the show for any amount per episode, and I will thank you by name on the next episode I record. And if you pledge a minimum of just a buck per episode, and of course more is certainly welcome, for a minimum of a buck an episode, you'll have access to special monthly episodes only available to Patreon supporters of this show. All right, now just a brief introduction to Bill, who he is, for those of you who are not familiar with him. Bill Bupert is a retired Army officer. He has been a writer for a number of publications, including LewRockwell.com. He is particularly interested in the issues of liberty, survival, shooting, and history. He has made frequent media appearances. He wishes to continue the abolitionist project of men like William Wilberforce and Lysander Spooner. A recognized authority on irregular and guerrilla warfare, he is the founder and publisher of ZeroGov.com, a great site that, by the way, also has a great forum, which, among other things, contains a section dedicated to this show, the Dangerous History Podcast. Bill is the author of two books, ZeroGov, Limited Government, Unicorns, and Other Mythological Creatures, gotta love that title, and just uh, recently came out with ZeroGov, A Vision for an Unshackled Humanity, Volume 2. So, I am very happy to share with you all part one of my conversation with Bill on the history of irregular warfare. Bupert, welcome to the Dangerous History Podcast. Oh, man. CJ, what an honor to be on your program. I, I, I feel like I've gotten called from on high to uh, to be a guest on your program. I'm a big fan of your work, and and I'm honored to be here. Well, thank you very much, and I'm a fan of your work as well. And I'm very happy to have you on to give you the chance to share with me and with my listeners some of your expertise on this subject of irregular warfare. So, before we get into discussing all all the detailed, you know, historical instances and terms and so on, if you would just share with me and my audience some of your background in this particular subject area. Well, I'm a retired intelligence officer, and I was also an intelligence NCO, and I, I took a break to go to school so that I get my commission in the U.S. Army, and I spent a brief amount of time as a combat arms officer, 
in the 101st Airborne Division. And then from there, I went on to various special operations, light infantry, and airborne postings until I retired. I took four years off, and then I became a military contractor. And again, pursued intelligence work, pursued uh, irregular warfare work, that kind of thing. And I even went on to get a graduate degree, believe it or not, in asymmetric warfare. And, and, and I'm, I proud, I'm proud of saying for folks who don't understand that phraseology necessarily that I got my master's degree in resistance and rebellion. And it was a very rigorous and challenging course, load of coursework that I did to achieve that. Okay. So, um, I'm, I'm talking to someone who, you know, I, I dabble in this subject as an historian, but I'm talking to someone who literally has a degree in it, which, was not in the um, the catalog at the university that I went to, so I didn't have the option. But, well, you are the guerrilla scholar, is that correct? Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm an autodidact when it comes to that stuff. Excellent. I think before we get into like some specific historical uh, instances, that it would be helpful to just sort of define some terms. The first one, and, and the one that I decided after email exchanges with you and so on, to sort of title this conversation is... Uh, history of irregular warfare. So if, if you would just share your definition, your understanding of irregular warfare as a term. Irregular warfare is a terrific umbrella term that talks about unconventional warfare as opposed to, of course, conventional warfare, guerrilla warfare, insurgency, counterinsurgency, and the entire spectrum of conflict that is either force of arms or maybe even nonviolent protests like we saw with Gandhi's Satyagraha campaigns, the early parts of the 20th century in, in India under the British Raj. So we can't think of this simply as the barrel of a gun, as Mao would tell us. We have to look at irregular warfare as a rubric that covers a force spectrum that goes all the way to not having arms at all. Of course, I suspect for the most part of this program, you and I are going to be talking about armed conflict more so than not. One thing I've got to talk about, and that's conventional warfare. I wrote a posting, the one before the one that, that just showed up on my blog concerning the Constitution, because I always have to savage the Constitution on Constitution Day on the 17th. But the one before that was called The Other Fight, Understanding Conventional Warfare. And in there, I talk about what is conventional warfare, what are the distinctions from unconventional and irregular warfare, and why is that something we need to understand? We need to understand that because... Conventional warfare is full-spectrum warfare. It's a kind of warfare that William Lind and Martin Van Creveld introduced us with the generations of modern war. So what I'd like to do, if I may, is go through those those generations one through four, CJ. And if there's anything you'd like to add while I'm speaking to them, please chime in so that people can get a fuller breadth of what we're talking about. The first generation of warfare, according to Lind and Van Creveld, is the Treaty of Westphalia in 1648, in which, after years of savage conflict on the European conflict uh, on the European continent, folks got together, international legations and such, and said, "We need to try to find a way to establish international laws of land warfare, and because naval warfare and wars about and admiralty law and, and such is distinctly different from the international laws of land warfare." And they want to say combatants must fight combatants, and we must have protocols in place so that we can avoid non-combatants being involved either inadvertently or directly targeted 
during wartime. So what the first established was, let's make sure that as all your listeners are probably um, familiar with in that movie, The Patriot with Mel Gibson, where you have the Continentals and you have the, the Redcoats standing off from one another at approximately 100 to 150 meters and firing off their rifles at each other. It seems insanity to you and I looking back on that, but what they were doing was fully embracing this treaty that had been signed a mere 125 years prior to that conflict. Then we move on to the second generation of warfare, which is basically attrition warfare. Attrition warfare is where you either hunker down in trenches or you stand toe-to-toe as the Continentals and the regulars did. And what you see is in the War of Northern Aggression, what some may call the Second American Revolution from 1861 to 1865, we see a lot of attrition warfare, but we also see something emerge that is very interesting, and that's actual maneuver warfare in two phases, what Liddell Hart would call indirect approach and direct approach. Direct approach is where you are contiguous on of where you're approaching, and indirect approach is where you may not necessarily be contiguous on the flanks and rear of the enemy, but you are making your way around so that you can either take their lines of communication and put them in the hazard or directly fight them from a, from a point of the compass they weren't expecting in the first place. So we see these hints of third generation warfare and William Lind, who I would, maybe we'll put this in the show notes, CJ, some, some, uh, some stuff that points to William Lind and what he's done with this because he's the one who's really popularized the term fourth generation warfare. In order for him to popularize that, he had to describe what generations one through three were. So third generation warfare is maneuver warfare. This could be blitzkrieg warfare. What you find with the German general staff when, when they were either the Schlieffen plan or the blitzkrieg tactics that they adopted in the thirties after World War I that they would use during World War II, these were maneuver tactics of, of a mass that, that was unseen since ancient times. That's another thing we have to keep in mind about these generations of warfare. Two things. Number one, generations one through four don't necessarily have to go through a proper sequence in order to be practiced in the field of, in the field of combat. Because we look back to Alexander's time and we look back to the field of Cannae with Hannibal where he quite literally used both a direct and an indirect approach. And what's described by some West Point analysts is one of the most perfect inferior force consolidations and victories over a superior force in the history of man, which is that battle of Cannae that I'm talking about that took place before the birth of Christ. One could say that was a third generation conflict the way it evolved. So we have one through three. Is there anything you want to add about the first through the third generation of conflict? Um, no, I think you summarized it pretty well, and I will put a, a link in the show notes to um, at least one of Lynn's articles about the generations. That'll be great. Now, fourth generation warfare, there's, there's a lot of controversy with this, of course. Fourth generation warfare, I would characterize as irregular warfare in all of the, the sub-suites that I described earlier, such as unconventional warfare, guerrilla warfare, insurgency, and of course, converse of insurgency, which is counterinsurgency and fighting those insurgencies themselves. One thing we have to keep in mind about fourth-generation warfare, but I suggest this characterizes all forms of warfare, is as Clausewitz taught us, you cannot divorce politics from warfare because politics, warfare is the extension of politics in a very violent fashion, in a much more violent fashion than 
most Westerners are accustomed to. So fourth generation warfare also means that you don't necessarily have to be a rich, technologically superior, mass army nation to succeed against who I just described. For instance, I would suggest what's very interesting. Since the end of World War II, America has won no major conflict that I can think of. Some have said, well, what about Kuwait? Well, what about Kuwait? I mean, uh, it, the due to what I think was was Bush's brilliant idea of stopping at the Iraqi, just north of the Iraqi border, and not going on to Baghdad, and not expanding this into a conflagration that would chew up the Middle East. Of course, we waited 15 years to do that, but he stopped. It was very interesting because he there was a Weinberger doctrine at the time that said, when we have our troops committed to wartime, we need to make sure that we have an exit strategy and we need to make sure that we have a strategy in place that allows us to say, okay, we're done, we've achieved our limited goals, and we're going to go on from here. Let me briefly talk about tactical, operational, and strategic and grand strategic echelons very quickly. Tactical would be where I'm describing formations of arms that are at the tip of the spear and usually getting bloodied. Operational would be taking armies and above, armies comprised of platoons, companies, battalions, regiments, brigades, divisions, and they're, they're under operational commands where they have several divisions which will comprise an army. That's where your operational framework of maneuver starts to take place. Or attrition, in the case of second-generation warfare, as we saw in World War I. Strategic is where the political military complex is trying to calculate what their chess moves are going to be for the, the next iterations of the conflict as it expands. And grand strategic frameworks tend to be frameworks that try to extrapolate what's the end game here, what's the exit strategy, and what are we trying to establish. And by making that mission and objective and intent known to all, they can set up guideposts through reverse planning to figure out how to take everything from the tactical to the operational to the strategic level, meet the end game that allows one side to win. I think you and I had a conversation where I'd mentioned that Colonel John Boyd, one of my favorite post-World War II strategists, he took strategy and he, he really divided it into something that was rather simple because it does seem like an arcane subject. It does seem like a subject that a lot of people can't wrap their heads around and say, oh, that's just too complex. He says all it's about is alliance and isolation. And there's a lot of truth to be told with that. Now, I've described all of this, CJ, but in our previous conversations, I've also told you that the West suffers from strategic deficit disorder and has to see end of World War II. They have this nasty habit of meddling with countries around the planet, not properly gauging second and third order effects. This happened during the Cold War with the USSR. And they have a bunch of unextrapolated blowback that occurs. For instance, I saw this great meme where they had two huge boomerangs in the sides of the buildings in 911. And it said, well, this is American foreign policy coming home to roost. And I think there's a lot of truth to be teased out of that. Um, would you say that the United States military is still generally in second generation? I do. I agree with Lynn's. Absolutely. Obviously, you've been you've been reading Lynn's work and some of the other stuff that's out there in strategic circles to right. come to that conclusion because they would tout themselves as a third generation organization. As a matter of fact, they came out with what's called um, 3.0, which is the operational framework around which the pentagram does all its stuff. Well, 
they call it mission type orders. And they say, we're going to adopt the German framework that's called Auftragstatik. And we'll put this in the show notes so that people can, can rock that and get their head around it. It's all about mission type orders. It's about where in 1940, the German generals are standing on the eastern side of France, just about to go over the border. And Guderian and Keitel and all the rest briefs his troops the following way. He says, here's your mission. Here's my intent. Here's where I want you to be. What do you need to achieve this? There's this notion in, in the American media, whether it's Hollywood or writing books or the kind of Bancroftian uh, national triumphalism that surrounds this greatest generation in the story of, of World War II, where the Germans are automatons. I would suggest that the Germans, the Wehrmacht, was not only the army to watch if you want to know how to do war properly. And of course, am I advocating war? I'm not. But you should understand things that, that you're up against, even if you're not a champion of them, because if you understand them, you may be able to either defeat them or turn them in another direction. But the Wehrmacht and the German Prussian general staff from 1806 to 1945, probably the Roman legions, could feel the finest fighting formations on earth. And one of the reasons for that was what my friend at Feral Judy talks about, and we'll put this in the show notes, show notes, which is the Prussian tendency to disobedience and the way they embrace that. If you go to my blog article on the other fight, Understanding Conventional Warfare, I put a link to a PDF interview that's 79 pages long, that happens to be from 1979, and it was a Patel interview with General Hermann Balf, who was probably one of the finest German field commanders during the entire conflict. If you go through that 79 pages, you say to yourself, why did they have the kind of flexibility, innovation, after-action reviews, and, and how could they achieve what they did, despite the fact that strategically and grand strategically, the Germans failed, especially in Russia, where four-fifths of their order of battle was deployed from 1941 onwards? You're just amazed at what they're able to do. And, and, and when I look at Van Crevelt's book, Fighting Power, where he, he looks at the American officer corps and he looks at the German officer corps, there's so much evidence there where America won that war through industrial might and luck because it certainly d didn't do it through martial pluck nor martial capability. Up until April 1945, for the most part, when German formations from the platoon level on up were on parity fighting other formations – of the same size, they generally either made it a stalemate or they prevailed. Through April 45, when so much of, of their fighting fervor and expertise died off, essentially. So I'm pretty astonished at, at what they were able to pull off. I'm no fan of National Socialism, if anybody who reads my blog will know, but I'm a fan of people doing it right. And if you really want to know how to do war right, and is there a good reason for that, CJ? I'm not certain that's something that we could philosophically discuss. Hmm. The Germans are the ones to pay attention to and read. Mm -hmm. And so basically a, a large part of it comes down to decentralized command and, and allowing lower and, and mid-level officers to have a higher degree of initiative than in most other uh, modern Western armies. Amen, brother. Amen. That, that, I, I, couldn't have, uh, I couldn't have made it concise my, better myself than you just did. And it all comes down to understanding intent, because intent is worth a thousand words. 
I told you about those those German commanders standing on the the, uh, the eastern frontiers of France, saying we want to get to the western frontiers of France. Here's what we need to achieve. In other words, here's the commander's intent. So go to it. Tell me what you need. By the way, I'm not going to tell you how to do it because you're trained well enough. You will figure that out. There's that oft-quoted phrase that I'm paraphrasing from Klaus Fitz in which friction and the fog of war causes every plan to go into the hazard once the first rounds are fired. And you and I, being the deep readers of history that we are, we see that again and again and again. Well, what if you've equipped the people that you throw into the fray with the means by which they can turn on a dime, change what they need to, because they have the intent in mind? Here's an interesting thing that most people don't know. In the American armed forces and most of the Western armed forces, you have to know the intent of your commander two levels up. So if I'm a company commander, I have to know my brigade commander's intent. In the German army, you had to know your division commander's intent because they wanted you to know it three levels up. The reason they did that was so that no matter how many heads got lopped off at the top, if a company commander is remaining and he has a fighting force, he knows the division commander's intent and he can fight forward. It seems to me also like that's a, a model of leadership that, um, you know, more, more like a delegation model where you establish a goal and then say, okay, you figure out exactly how to do it. That is equally well suited even to just, you know, a, a private sector company. You're, you're right. As a matter of fact, I, I have a consulting organization called the Gravitas Group and I am blending both parts of Altrex tactic and stoicism to show corporations how they can use this to move their organizations forward in a very innovative environment. Yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking about my own experience, and I'm sure any anyone listening has had the experience of one care, one type of a bad boss is a boss who is the micromanager, and um, that a good a good boss just in a job is the type of boss who is able to delegate, right? Who's able to because he to trusts make, his people. Yeah, exactly. He yeah. he's you know he knows that they know what they're doing, that they're yeah. properly trained, whatever. Yeah, and he's he's willing to establish you know what the goal is. And then, and then delegate from there as to how to exactly do it. And that that's, you know, all, all the studies into what makes work meaningful. Uh, part of what makes work meaningful is having some ability to kind of solve the problems and figure out the details yourself without having everything dictated to you from the top. Because the assumption in, in the, in the German general staff system from 1806 to 1945, and you see it in the Bundeswehr today to a certain extent is they assume that not only did they select their officers on character, not simply because of IQ scores, but they would go to Krieg's academies. And they would also do an interesting thing during the conflict in which a field army is deployed forward on the Russian front. That field army is always in touch with the army that is going to succeed it or relieve it for what's called a riptoa, which is a, uh, a relief in place where they are still continuing on the fight. But he's got this constant communication for six to eight months before he comes to relieve that commander at the front. So he's got a really good idea of what he's coming into without having to jump into it with, with no knowledge whatsoever, no, no baseline of, of what his area of operations looks like from both a, a positive and negative standpoint. And also relief speaks to what is the loiter time for combat troops where you have to draw them out because they're no longer optimized where they are. You know, those combat exhaustion, things like that. You're, uh, you're, you're, you're a fan of ancient warfare, right? So you, you're, you're conversant yep. in, in how hoplite phalanxes and, and Roman armies operate. 
One interesting thing that sort of speaks to this that the Roman army used to do is that the centurionate, the centurions, the company commanders, which let's say they have roughly 100 to 120 men under them, when you had a Roman phalanx and a Roman line that would get into their square and they were engaged in battle, you heard, you would heard, you would hear whistles, whistles for two reasons. Number one, when you're fighting, you can't pay attention to visual signals all the time. You're going to be listening for stuff. And also because of dust and things like that, which may cause obscurance to be in the air where you, you can't see the signals by the, uh, by the, the wolf's head clad signalers who would be giving that. Well, what they would do is you'd hear that whistle go off. The man who had his left hand on the man in front of him, who was, who was a man at the front of the phalanx, would grab him out from the front line and step in seamlessly with his partners in the line to his left and right. He goes to the back of the line to rest and refit. Because imagine, you know, how intense that kind of single combat was when you look at Roman phalanxes and Greek phalanxes. You're not going to last very long because you, you've got that adrenaline rush. So they'd put them in five to ten minute increments and then they'd relieve them. So the, if they're ten deep, what that essentially meant is that if you got five minutes and you're ten deep, you're not coming back to the front line for an hour and rest and refit. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And yeah. and it seems like there are some some armies that take into account the human factor, that take into account things like you're going to be exhausted and much less effective, so you got to be rotated out for a while. Exactly. And then there are there are some armies that that don't take the human factor into account, like and the basically Russian say, army. yeah, and basically just say, hey, go go do it until until right. we're done. Right. And and it, I guess there's like a larger a larger lesson to be drawn from that. That again, wh- whether you're you're running an army or whether you're running a business, you have to take the human factor into account. You have to take into into account that your subordinates are human beings with all the pluses and minuses that comes with the human condition. Absolutely. Yes. Now, mind you, one thing that, that I point out in my article concerning conventional warfare, you'll, you'll hear me poo-poo the Russians on occasion, but I will tell you, I cannot, in my recollection, in my, in my casual reading, I, I consider myself fairly deeply read in history, but certainly not like some of the folks that are out there. But when I look at what the Russians were able to achieve from 1943 to 1945, because we, when we look at the absolute calamity of Operation Mars, which was the low ebb of Russian arms, where they were just a mess and they were, they were being crushed under the German Wehrmacht Leviathan. But from 43 to 45, when you look at the evolution of arms in Russia, no one progressed so quickly at the operational strategic level. And I would urge your audience, if you don't believe me, take a look at what happened after the bombs were dropped in Japan in that week after on the, in, in the, uh, the country of Manchuria and those, those borders of Siberia where the Soviets rolled on the Japanese armies remaining on the Chinese landmass, the, the, the slaughter was amazing on, on, uh, the, the extent and scale by which the Russians were able to absolutely crush the Japanese armies. When I say Japanese armies, I'm talking Armies in, in the conventional sense, where these aren't simply divisions, these are groups of armies with corps, with divisions and such, and they just got crushed. Uh, uh, so if your audience can take a look at that sometime, maybe we'll put it in the show notes. But it's, are, are you conversant in that, CJ, that, what happened in August with, the, uh, with what the Soviets did to the Japanese on the Chinese landmass? A little bit. I've never studied it in any great depth, but I do know that there's a lot of evidence, for example, that the – the Soviets were a larger factor in causing the Japanese government to throw in the towel than were the A-bombs. You know, I'm of, 
I'm of a mind when it came to, and we got to watch ourselves on segues because I'm the king of those, but I just want to cover <laughs> this very quickly. Those bombs that were dropped on Japan from, from a philosophical and moral standpoint, I think it was wrong. I do think it was a demonstration project against the Soviets. And this is a lot deeper than the show demands, but I am convinced that the Venona transcripts of what we've seen and because of the Soviet, I guess one could say, uh, control of the White House during the entirety of the war with Roosevelt, the thing they feared the most was having the Japanese head into Russia after they've disposed of China and join hands with the Germans in the middle. And they were trying to do everything possible to make that something that didn't occur. So I would commend to your reader's attention to read a book called Operation Snow that talks about Pearl Harbor. And if they read that in concert with Day of Deceit by Stinnett, you can sort of put the pieces together as to why the Soviets may very well have made it so that the Japanese had to face the U.S. instead of the Russians. Because isn't it odd, CJ, in all your reading of military history, that the Japanese and the Germans had probably one of the most casual and non-linked alliances in the history of mankind when it came to us. Yeah, it is, it is strange. It is strange. And, um, and yet still Hitler right away declared war on America after Pearl Harbor, which is one of those, uh, I don't know, things. It's always been, that's always just been a, a tough one for, for me to wrap my head around why he did that. But I guess he was just, you know, not all there mentally anyway. But. I, I, I don't think so. And I think that's another show for us to talk about yeah. the war to save Joseph Stalin. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. All right. So um, we've talked about the, the generations of modern war. We've talked about kind of what irregular warfare is. A um, few more terms I want to throw out there that a lot of people, and I'm guilty of this as well, seem to often use interchangeably are um, unconventional warfare, guerrilla warfare, and insurgency. So are are those really synonyms or are they are they particular manifestations of irregular warfare or how should we think about those terms? I would say in the post-World War II world that we live in today, there's this notion that guerrilla warfare and unconventional warfare are the same. But I would suggest to you that unconventional warfare – is what the Chinese have, and well, I would say, both the Chinese and the Israelis have participated in, in, in a sort of soft power exercise of industrial espionage and hacking into government databases and things like that. I characterize that as unconventional warfare, but certainly not guerrilla warfare. I think guerrilla warfare is usually where rifles, small arms, and such are, are, are wielded in the conflict. For instance, the Indians admit, and I don't know how much how much credence I, I can put to this, but on the Indian subcontinent alone, they say that there are over 300 ongoing insurgencies from north to south, east to west. Could be, I'm not certain. Definitely some of those are guerrilla warfare. And then there's this characterization, and I don't think that we should talk about terrorism a lot during this because it really obfuscates this. Can a terrorist be a guerrilla? Yes. Does a guerrilla have to be a terrorist? No. Here's the reason why. If I'm not dressed in the mufti that the West approves for me to be a fighter against an occupier who's invaded my land, but I just so happen to lay in wait with IEDs, which, by the way, are simply the latest manifestation of the millennia-old warfare called mind warfare. If I lay in wait for a military convoy with military-clad folks in uniforms and guns to go on route Irish from the Baghdad International Airport to the Green Zone, 
and I pop off at those guys or I conduct a complex attack or anything like that, that is not a form of terrorism because terrorism is, and I really like Caleb Carr's definition of lessons of terror, terrorism is the politically motivated violence and innocence. That's not what they're doing. What they're doing is they're engaging in warfare, but they're not engaging in the warfare that the West likes to characterize, especially the West doesn't like to give their enemies any credence. Here's, here's what really puts it into perspective for me. I just got finished reading Reed's book called Human Game. Have you seen The Great Escape? Uh, you're talking about the Steve McQueen film? That's the one. Yep. Well, in The Great Escape, after Stalag Luft III, about 100 prisoners get away. A lot of them are captured. You'll notice in there that I think it was 50 or 51 were shot by the Gestapo. Well, after the war, Human Game talks about how the RAF assigned a special investigative force to go after all those Gestapo members and bring them to justice. So I'm reading some of the conversations they're having of some of the people that they nab, and they're saying, you shot these RAF men in cold blood. To which one of the, uh, the, the soldiers says, you know, we did. I do admit to that, and I'm paraphrasing here. But when you, when your airmen were in their bombers over our cities, for instance, with Dresden, where 50,000 civilians died from the firebombing, what's the difference between the fact that I looked the person I shot in the eyes, or I shot them in the back of the head, and all you did was you saw red blossoms in the cloud mass that may have looked pretty, but you have no idea the kind of horror and terror that you wreaked at the bottom. So a lot of this depends on perspective as far as who the bad guy is, who the good guy is, and will characterize guerrillas as terrorists when they're not being terrorists. All they're doing is they're simply defending their homeland from occupiers. So that's the distinction I would make between unconventional warfare and guerrilla warfare. When we talk about insurgency, what an insurgency is, is an insurgency has two goals. First goal is to carve out a section of land in a given nation state that it would own, much like what we see with the Kurds. The other part of an insurgency is where not only are they trying to carve out a portion of land, they're trying to take over the government, much like what the North did to the South when the South seceded in 1861. And then, of course, we did have conventional warfare then, but we had Confederate partisans. We had the, the uh, it was the uh, Missouri and Kansas bloody wars that they had between the free staters and the free soil folks, the ones who wanted slavery and the ones who didn't before the war even really kicked off. So a, a lot of this depends on one's political perspective uh, as to how we're going to characterize them as a terrorist or a guerrilla. And as a very quick side note, if you think about it, terrorism, according to Caleb Carr, is politically motivated violence, either threatened or used, combatants and innocents. How could any government on earth exist if they didn't practice that every day? Yeah. Yeah, and that that's always been to me the the dividing line I suppose when it comes to the question of of the moral high ground and so on is when you're looking at any any sort of irregular fighter what what are their targets, right? What Exactly. Who are are they are they going after, you know, occupying foreign troops or something like that or or the 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 actual you know, police and military of a state that they don't like and don't want to be living under? Yeah. Or are they going after just like random people at a market or, you know, that sort of thing? And, and I think that uh, uh, according to our discussions before the show, we'll be covering some specific cases of that so that we can bandy that about and, and try to tease that, that very idea out. We talk, for instance, when we talk about what I, 
what I consider the uh, peak gorilla <laughs> at the turn of the 20th century when we have we have T.E. Lawrence in Arabia, we have Leto Vorbeck in German East Africa, we have Michael Collins in the Anglo-Irish War, and we had a number of other minor players planet-wide, but from 1916 to 1922, from a from a irregular warfare perspective, what a what an interesting six years for the historian to study and try to find and 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 uh, contrast and figure out. Well, why why are there similarities there? Why did they do what they did in in that specific case? So I hope we could tease some of that out. Well, uh, one more term that I wanted to uh, get your take on is counterinsurgency or coin. <laughs> the, the the literally the other side of the coin, right? You know, isn't it interesting that General Petraeus penned the uh, the counterinsurgency manual in 2004 that would go on to become the guiding force and guiding light. Unfortunately, like the 3.0 I was talking about earlier, where they adopt mission type orders, but they're simply giving it lip service. They did the same thing here because the U.S. conducts and the West conducts, conducts coin. For them, it's very kinetic. It's all about what can our kill count be? What can our body count be? How many houses have we bum rushed today? How many people have we shot in the face? How many people have we dominated and intimidated? And as General Templar would tell you from Malaya, who was probably one of the finest coin practitioners, despite the very special circumstances he had in Malaya, one of the finest coin practitioners, he's the one who came up with the term hearts and minds, where he said all insurgency conflicts revolve around hearts and minds because these are political military conflicts in which the military is the junior partner in the entire operational and strategic effort. Because when it comes down to it, legitimacy and the addressing of perceived and real grievances is the fulcrum upon which all insurgencies and counterinsurgencies revolve. So it, it seems like the entire concept of, of victory, victory or winning is really not there when it comes to counterinsurgency, because if victory is defined as, you know, the traditional conventional view of victory of, of just dominating your enemy, getting complete submission, and then imposing your will upon him, it seems like that's probably not impossible. That's probably not possible in an in an insurgency, you know, in a counterinsurgency campaign, unless you're willing to go like to the borders of genocide, basically. That in a way you you have to um, kind of satiate some of their maybe a, a remedy some of the things that the the people who are backing the insurgents are pissed off about. And so victory in the conventional sense maybe isn't even possible. I I, I don't think I don't think it's possible at all. It's interesting because. How many Muslim insurgencies have been defeated by the West since 1945? I can't think of any. Zero. Absolutely zero. As a matter of fact, you know, when one thinks about it, the U.S. government and the West are fighting a foe who is quite literally willing to immolate themselves to achieve victory. It's very hard, for instance, in Afghanistan with the creation of the Afghan National Army and all the forces that are aligned with Kabul, which are the forces that are aligned with the West and the coalition there. It's very difficult to ask them to use suicide as a methodology in fighting the Taliban, Jundala, uh, Daesh, all the rest. Of, there's hundreds of, of uh, resistance organizations in Afghanistan, as there is in Iraq, unlike what the media tells you. And not all these guys get along. Some of them get along. Some of them get along out of convenience. It ebbs and flows. It's very dynamic. But they're not going to use that methodology and it's a pretty powerful methodology. For instance, 
Look at the IDF, the, Isra- the Israeli Defense Forces. And I'd like to leave Israel out of the conversation as far as me saying, are they good or bad? Because I, I don't think that's a conversation. But the IDF and Israel's reputation as a fighting force, and there's a lot of self-aggrandizement that goes on here. Is there one of the finest in the world? Would you, would you agree with that, that that's what the, the media plays? Sure, although a lot of it's based on wars that happened, you know, 40 years ago. <laughs> Indeed, 67 and 73. And then when you look at 1982 with the invasion of Lebanon and 2006 with that invasion of Lebanon and all the incursions and stuff that's happened in between, they have yet to defeat the Muslims. And when you look at how Hamas behaved, read the Winograd report concerning how Hamas behaved because it it caused a huge row in the Israeli military forces. And some people were fired over it because of how well prepared they were for that 2006 conflict and how well prepared Hamas was for the invasion of the conventional forces and for the propaganda war that resulted from the Israelis being so air-centric in the way they prosecuted the campaign in the first 10 days. But getting back to my original point, it's this. The Palestinian problem, wherever you take sides on this, one, when we're examining this particular issue, you don't have to take sides on whether you think the Palestinians or the Israelis are right. Can one fairly say that despite the Palestinians being bowed pretty low right now, they have given the IDF a run for their money that has driven them to stalemate. Yeah. Yeah, they have. As a matter of fact, I would suggest to you that not only did defeat occur in Iraq, but stalemate is occurring as we speak in Afghanistan. And if you look at Libya and you look at Yemen and you look at the Horn of Africa and all these other hot spots where, where America rushes in like a man who has honeyed his loins and he's batting out a pinata that he hasn't been told is a hornet's nest, and he's surprised when he gets stung. Yeah. Uh, one one example that comes to my mind of a case where an insurgency was not necessarily defeated, but seems to have been at least largely diffused, is Northern Ireland. Since the um, you know the Good Friday peace accords and all that, it's now yeah, one of yeah. the one of the calmer, quieter corners of the UK now, um, and. That to me seems like a case where you diffuse the insurgency by essentially giving into at least a lot of its demands. Obviously, they didn't they didn't grant um, you know Northern Ireland status as part of the Irish Republic or anything like that, but but they did do a lot to address Catholic grievances and you know empower the Catholics more politically within Northern Ireland and so on. And that this was able to take out a lot of the mass support. For groups like the IRA, not not that they don't still exist, but I mean they're not they're well, they, not what they were. They exist in various permutations, and you're right, you're you're dead on about this. What what fascinates me about the Irish Rebellion, which I've spent a lot of time on, is this one of the few insurgencies, counterinsurgencies, guerrilla conflicts that you and I, as English speakers, have access to all the primary source and secondary source documentation that's written in, in our mother language. Yeah, I, I actually studied. My main field in my in my master's degree was British Empire. Okay. And I spent a fair amount of time studying modern Ireland modern Ireland particularly 20th century. Yeah. I even did um uh, an independent study course with my with my graduate advisor just on the history of modern Ireland. And you're absolutely right that that's one of the great things is, you know, other than the occasional occasional thing in Gaelic Everything's in English, but even in even in Northern Ireland, there's not that many Gaelic speakers. You know, the Gaelic speakers are mostly in the western part of the country. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you know that that wasn't very common. The only thing you had to learn was sort of 
they use Gaelic for um, some of their political terminology, right? But um, well, what like, is it? The like Sinn Fein. Yeah, yeah. And when you and, look at the IRB and the IRA, they would speak in Gaelic so that the the blacks and tans and the forces that were arrayed against them couldn't understand their communications. Yeah, and when looking at the the Republic of Ireland in the south, you know, all their names for their political offices are in Gaelic. So the prime minister is the Taoiseach and all that stuff. And they have the Dale. Uh, right, right. Yeah. You know, for the for the most part, the documents are in English, though. Yeah. So it's it's nice and easy for us. You make such a great point, though, about Northern Ireland because one of the brilliant things, again, whether you agree with their goals or not, we're we're trying to examine this, examine this from a more forensic perspective. They early on the IRB, the Irish Republican Brotherhood, which morphed into the Irish Republican Army after the Easter Rising, they bifurcated their efforts and they said, Sinn Fein, you're going to be sort of cut out. You're going to pursue our political goals. IRB, IRA, you're going to give teeth to those political goals, but we're going to have two stovepiped organizations run each other's business. And I think that's one of the reasons the British had such a hell of a time trying to put the IRB and the IRA in the grave for the entirety up until the, you know, the Good Friday Accords. I mean, look at it. It's, it's, it's a hundred years. The Easter Rising was, was 1916. But I would also suggest, you know, it was an 800-year occupation, and, and oh, these, sure. these risings would occur on a fairly frequent basis. You know, the, look at the Scottish Rising at Culloden in 1746 from 13 right. – let's see, what was it? Um, August 24th, 1317. We can stipulate that. People can look it up, and they'll say, Bill, your, 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 your year is wrong. When Robert the Bruce prevails over the British at Stirling Bridge and establishes – Scottish suzerainty. Well, from that time until 1746, the Scots are free of, of English lordship. But from 1746 until today, you know, where we see the Scottish referendum and such, they've been English poodles. Yeah. And, and a whole interesting subject area, which I guess we shouldn't get into here, but man, what an interesting, uh, side, side trip is the phenomenon you often see in empires where some of the people who are conquered early on then become some of the, you know, main operatives of the empire. Like how, how many Scots then participated in, in building the British empire? And then even how many Irish participated, you know, joined the, joined the British military or worked in the British, uh, imperial civil service and so on. Agreed. Look and, at the Indians, look at the Sikhs, look at the Gurkhas. Yeah. And, yeah. and today look at how many, uh, Americans from the South are, you know, gung ho to join the military. And, you know, in a way, you could argue they're they're sort of like a conquered people within the within the federal empire. And and they're the most, you know, gung ho to, to go trotting off to um, Uncle Sam's wars. I agree. Now that we've gone over some of the terms and, and taken plenty of interesting side side journeys along the way, um, we can start getting into kind of jogging through history and I wanted to mostly talk about modern history, modern in this instance being maybe last 200 years. But before we get into that, I did want to ask, where would you say that, that this sort of warfare, this irregular warfare can first be found in human history? Sometimes you hear people refer to uh, the Roman general Fabius Maximus as an early example of this, this sort of warfare yeah. or Sun Tzu, both in theory and in practice, you know, when, when he was an actual yeah. Chinese general. But, um, you indicated in some of our email exchanges that it can go all the way back to the beginning of our species. Would, would you like to elaborate on that? 
certainly, and, and my response to you, sort of tongue-in-cheek, was Cro-Magnon versus uh, Neanderthals, and, and, and obviously the Neanderthals lost, and Cro-Magnon became the sort of like the direct antecedent to who we are today. I would suggest we don't have a large historical record for that, but most likely, not only did they participate in conventional warfare against each other, I suspect that they participated in unconventional warfare. We have some historical records that go back even before Fabius Maximus's, Fabius Maximus, the formation of the Roman Empire, Sun Tzu, what happened in the Chinese East and such, where people would poison water wells. People would, uh, would raise, R-A-Z-E, raise large agricultural plots so that people would starve. People would steal women. Uh, I view that as a form of unconventional warfare apart from conventional warfare. I get it. There was no Treaty of Westphalia then, and that it was all on all as far as, as far as their war, warfare was, was done. But I, I suspect that there were plenty of generals going back to the earliest parts of humanity who used other indirect or unconventional means to achieve victory. That was my point in saying that. Right. So, even though there wasn't really like a, a state the way we think about it today in most places back then, you, you could still make the, the argument, I guess, that you still had kind of a version of conventional war. Basically, as, as long as, you know, one tribe's warriors are fighting another tribe's warriors in more or less open battle, that that's, that's conventional. Yes. And then any, anything that's sort of outside of that realm could still be characterized as, as uh, irregular warfare of some type. You know, you as me are a fan of Victor Davis Hanson, not his political stuff, but his historical stuff, especially his examination of Greek hoplite warfare. Greek hoplite warfare was very ritualized. It was very much the kind of thing where they met as honorable men for single combat to the, to the tip of the bloodied spear. And then after that two to 12 hour event was over, they'd all return to their farms, having apparently solve their difficulties. I would suggest that unconventional warfare would be people maybe with lesser and immoral motives who would poison olive trees, poison wells, try to pay out as we saw in in the uh the movie 300 which was based on Xenophon's march. I mean not based on Xenophon's march but based loosely on history as you and I are both aware. Right. But you saw what would happen there where there'd be the tit for tat and they would do things that were fairly underhanded, but it isn't underhanded in the perspective that we're used to in civilian affairs. It's underhanded in a way that Clausewitz and Jomini would not approvingly at, which is Liddell Hart's indirect approach, where, for instance, in 1991, instead of taking on the Iraqi army at the front toe-to-toe, we go around them, envelop them, take them from the rear, use combined arms, and destroy them in detail. That's conventional warfare. But there was also a lot of political shenanigans going on in the, in the, in the side wings to make that more effective than it was. And I think that that goes back through history where that kind of thing happens. As a matter of fact, one could suggest that unconventional warfare could be like a Machiavellian use of politics to either weaken your foe on the field or weaken them in their political resolve. All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and, um, for the sake of time, 
I guess, close up this episode and then we will be continuing this. Uh, I'm not, not sure yet how many episodes this conversation will encompass, but I would imagine <laughs> it'll, it'll probably be at least between three and 12. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, Bill, thank you for uh, joining me on the Dangerous History Podcast for this episode. And I look forward to talking to you again very soon. Such a pleasure. And, and one thing I love about what you've done is not only is the quality of your work top drawer, I get the feeling that what you're doing, posterity, you're not just speaking to the coming weeks or months. You're trying to put something together here that people can refer to back over the years. And there's some good conversation going on there. I, I hope so. I, I hope that, you know, that's what it, that's what it lives up to. So I, I appreciate you joining me very much. Thanks for having me on. All right. I want to say thanks very much to Bill once more for sharing his time and his expertise with us. I've really enjoyed the conversation thus far, and I know you will as well. You can look forward to probably at least three more episodes upcoming with Bill on this subject in the next few weeks. Please check out Bill's website, zerogov.com. In addition to that site, I'm linking to lots of things that Bill mentioned in the show notes as well, so be sure to check out the show notes for this episode over at profcj.org. If you have any comments that are relevant to this particular episode, please feel free to post them in the comment section for this episode at my website. And you can also email me with any sorts of questions or comments at profcj at profcj.org. You can connect with the show on Facebook and Twitter and subscribe to the show in various ways, including iTunes and Stitcher. If you enjoy this show and want to see it keep going and keep continuously getting better and better, there are multiple ways you can do this. One, of course, very simply and not expensive, in fact, in most cases it is flat out free, is to help spread the word about this show to people you think might appreciate it. Also consider leaving a rating or review in venues such as iTunes or Stitcher where you can do that sort of thing. And of course, you can help the show out financially in multiple ways. You can donate directly. If you go to profcj.org slash donate, you'll see multiple ways to do that, including PayPal and Bitcoin. You can also help the show out financially by purchasing items from Amazon by first going through any of the Amazon affiliate links found on my website. And in today's show notes, the Amazon links will include Bill's books as well as books related to some of the things we talked about today, uh, some of the titles that Bill mentioned in our conversation. And of course, again, you can help out the show via Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash profcj and sign up for a per-episode donation. Huge thank you, as always, to everyone who is donated or signed up on Patreon or bought stuff from my Amazon links recently. This is what makes it possible for me to keep doing this show. Thank you for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. This has been Prof. CJ today, along with Bill Bupert, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future. 